0: Morning. I want to begin with uh, a very Doctor Seussish, uh, Doctor Seussish, is that a word? <laughs> <laughs> Type of uh, writing from actually author Max Lucado from his book Fearless, which uh, it's entitled Stilts, which I think was an apropos introduction to this message today. He writes, "Perhaps you don't know. Then maybe you do." about Stiltsville, the village, so strange but so true, where people like we, some tiny, some small, with jobs and kids and clocks on the wall, keep an eye on the time for each evening at six they meet in the square for the purpose of sticks, tall stilts upon which Stiltsvillians can strut and be lifted above those down in the rut the less than the least, the tribe of two smalls, the not cools, the have-nots who want to be tall, but can't because in the giving of sticks, their name was not called, they didn't get picked. Yet still, they come when villagers gather, they press to the front to see if they matter to the click of the cool in the court of the high clout that decides who is special and declares with a shout You're classy, you're pretty, you're clever, you're funny. And and bequeath a prize, not of medals or money, not a freshly baked pie or a house someone built, but the oddest of gifts, a gift of some stilts. Moving up is their mission, going higher their aim. Elevate your position is the name of their game. The higher ups of Stiltsville you know if you've been there make the biggest to-do of the sweetness of thin air. They relish the chance on their high apparatus to strut on their stilts the ultimate status. For isn't life best when viewed from the top? Unless you stumble and suddenly are not. So sure of your footing, you tilt and then sway. Look out below and you fall straight away into the two smalls hoi polloi of the earth. You land on your pride. Oh boy, how it hurts. When the Sheik police in the jilt of all jilts don't offer to help, but instead take your stilts. Who made you king, you start to complain, but then notice the hour and forget your refrain. It's almost six, no time for chatter. It's back to the crowd to see if you matter. There it is. There's the question. The Amazon River, out of which a thousand flow. Do we matter? We fear we don't. We fear nothingness, insignificance. We fear evaporation. We fear that in the last tabulation we make no contribution to the final sum. We fear coming and going and no one knowing. Do people matter to God? And if so, which people? Do only black lives matter? Do sick people matter? Do the elderly matter? Do babies' lives matter? Addressing this quandary raises another more personal issue. Do you matter to him? And do I? For the last few weeks, we've been looking at five aspects of Christ's public ministry to the Gentiles as he unveiled it in a Nazareth synagogue. The scene captured in Luke's gospel is pretty dramatic. Let's review it again. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Hopefully, by the time we get done this, you'll have this memorized. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district, and he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, And he sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, my premise in the last couple of messages has been simply that this is a text that we must not only make it our purpose to understand, but intentionally decide to undertake as a church made up of people who follow Christ. So the big idea has been undertaking the ministry of Christ, of the church, means understanding the ministry of Christ. And if there's one thing we cannot escape, it's the overwhelming fact that people with a majority a focus from Jesus during his ministry. People are the major focus of Jesus' ministry. They say, well, that's pretty elementary. Well, is it? While the power for ministry is the spirit and the program for ministry is pretty specific it's about being and bringing the good news of the gospel, we must also understand that the point of ministry is people. The point of ministry is people, and it's all wrapped up right there in verse 18. He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, To set free those who are oppressed. Someone has said, Don't use your people to build your church, use your church to build your people. It's a great statement. But how often do we get that turned upside down? That's where ministry should be focused, shouldn't it? Isn't that how Jesus operated? He wasn't interested in using people to build an empire. He was really interested in taking rejected, oppressed, lowly people who were enslaved to sin, abused by the world, and held captive by the devil to do his will, and freeing them, transforming them into devoted, powerful, and productive followers of God. He saw people as having value. Now, that's very biblical, isn't it? We say that like it's a cliché, But it's a biblical principle. In Matthew chapter 10, in verse 29, we read these words. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, says Jesus. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. People have value, they have potential, they have significance. He connected with people who were beat up and who were pushed out by society and especially by the so called religious. Now, do we engage with those same people? He personally engaged the people that most of the ministries of his day actually threw away the sinners, the helpless, the hopeless the prostitutes, the tax gatherers, the lepers, the marginalized. He constantly condemned the self-righteous theologians and converted the unrighteous thieves. He welcomed and physically touched those who others would would literally just run away from. And he not only embraced them, but he also sought out those who who needed the touch of a loving heart Do we actually look for those people? That's the big question today as we look at this text. Luke chapter 14 and verses 12 to 14 says, And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, otherwise they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous." Look at verse 15. These are the pre-invited guests, the nation of Israel. Jesus is using this metaphor. He says, when one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. First one said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I have bought a five yoke of oxen and I am going to try them out. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I have married a wife and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. And then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. How many times do you suppose that we're going to see that grouping of people said by Jesus? Two or three times now just this morning. Luke chapter 5 Verse 29, and Levi, meaning Matthew, gave a big reception for him in his house for Jesus. And there was a great crowd of tax gatherers, tax collectors, and other people who were reclining at the table with him, with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners, to repentance. Listen, I'm not going to lie to you this morning, nor make myself out to be someone who I'm not. I have to ask myself the very hard question that I'm going to ask you right now. When was the last time I, or you, made an intentional effort to embrace the very people that these texts that I just read are talking about? The people that Jesus named as he stood reading from Isaiah in that synagogue, the poor and the captives and the blind and the downtrodden. What did he mean by those terms? the poor, the word refers to the lowest form of degradation relating to the idea of both physical and spiritual destitution. I did a little research this week on some statistics on poverty and they're pretty astounding and I won't bore you with a lot of the statistics and we shouldn't be bored with them at all. We should be saddened and we should be hurt and convicted. But did you know that 10% of the world's population live in extreme poverty, less than $1.90 a day. In the United States, 12.3% of the population or 39.7 million people live in poverty with an income of less than $33 a day. That's the United States. That's according to a 2017 census. But that just tracks finances there's this thing called multi dimensional poverty. Multi dimensional poverty acknowledges that poverty isn't always about income. Sometimes a person's income might be above the poverty line, but their family has no electricity, no access to a proper toilet, no clean drinking water, and no one in the family has completed six years of school. That's multi dimensional poverty. There's many more people in that category. Across 107 developing countries, 1.3 billion people, that's 22%, live in multidimensional poverty. And you know that 107 million multidimensionally poor people are age 60 or older? A particularly important figure during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, here's some perspective for you. Get this. This one shocked me. The entire health budget of Ethiopia. The entire health budget of all of Ethiopia. A country of 105 million people is equivalent to just 1% of the fortune of the world's richest man. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos 1% of his net worth the entire health budget of Ethiopia that's amazing to me so i have to ask myself and i have to ask you you have to ask yourself when was the last time that i ministered to the poor because by comparison we're all rich right I'm not necessarily talking about sending them money. While that's a great ministry, it's an entirely different application. It is definitely helpful, and God, I'm sure, blesses that. It's not the same, though, as personally feeding them. And I praise God for those of you who have gone on to mission trips like Haiti and Mexico and Indonesia and other nations, and for for people in our church and helpers that have provided free monthly meals over the years for people in town. But I have to regularly ask myself and all of us must, am I truly interested in ministering to the poor as Jesus was? He didn't just do it as a a monthly thing or a thing that he checked the box off that's one more thing to do as a Christian. This was his interest. Am I as interested in that as Jesus was? 1 John chapter 2 and verses 5 and 6, and the message says, this is the only way to be sure we're in God. Anyone who claims to be intimate with God ought to live the same kind of life Jesus lived. The Bible indicates that the poor are at the center of God's heart. Leviticus 19. Matter of fact, Philip Yancey, in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, writes that... uh, Catholic scholars coined the phrase God's preferential option for the poor to describe this phenomenon that they found throughout both the Old and New Testaments that God has a place specially prepared in his heart toward the poor and the disadvantaged. And you see that in the scriptures. Why would God single out the poor for special attention over any other group? Yancey says, I used to wonder about that. What makes the poor deserving of God's concern And I received help on this issue from a writer named Monica Helwig who lists the following advantages to being poor, generally speaking. And I'm not going to list them all, but I'll give you two or three. She said, the poor know not only their dependence on God and on powerful people, but also their interdependence upon one another. When the poor have the gospel preached to them, It sounds like good news, not like a threat or a scolding. The poor can respond to the call of the gospel with a certain abandonment and uncomplicated totality because they have so little to lose and are ready for anything. That's a big one right there. In summary, Through no choice of their own, they may urgently wish otherwise. Poor people find themselves in a posture that befits the grace of God. In their state of neediness, dependence, and dissatisfaction with life, they may welcome God's free gift of love. Now, I said generally because that's not always the case. But this may explain some things. Then Jesus talks about the captives. Literally, that term means prisoners of war. The allusion is to everyone who is a prisoner of Satan, by, which, by the way, the Bible says, is every person who is not a believer in Christ, according to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, that he has people held captive to do his will. And then Jesus talks about the blind that he's called to preach Uh, to, to give recovery of sight to the blind. And it's not just the physically blind that he was talking about, but I think he was talking about those who are spiritually blind, in the dark, stumbling around, trying to find their way through this life. And then he mentions the downtrodden or the oppressed. Literally, the term means broken in pieces. I going to tell you, the world is lo- loaded, loaded, loaded with broken people, isn't it? The abused in this country number in the myriads. People who have been crushed by financial, emotional and verbal and sexual and physical, mental and spiritual abuse. They need good news. They don't need judgment. They need to be set free. They don't need another set of burdens and a manipulative mind game, set of mind games. No self-help group will permanently release anyone from a long-term bondage of abuse. We, the church, on the other hand, are the ones who have the authority given to us by Jesus and the ability given to us by the Holy Spirit to set people free in Christ. Amen? If you want to build a successful church in the world's eyes, you stay away from people like the ones Jesus mentioned, like the poor and the captives and the blind and the broken. Yet Jesus centered his ministry on those people. Should we do any less? But it happens also subtly, doesn't it, that we begin to harden ourselves against those who are in the greatest need. We need to be different. I need to be different. We need to be more like Christ was because his ministry is our ministry and there are a lot of needy people out there right now. Isaiah 42 verses one to three says, behold my servant whom I uphold, meaning Christ, my chosen one in whom my soul delights I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. And this is the key one. A bruised reed he shall not break and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. I love the movie version of Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. As a matter of fact, there's a brand new one that just came out that's airing on Prime right now. It was done last year, and I've been watching it. The story, I love the story, because it tells the story of Jean Valjean, a hardened criminal French prisoner whose life is ultimately transformed after his release by the undeserved forgiveness, mercy, and kindness of a bishop from whom he attempted to steal. Now, the power of the bishop's act, which went against every human instinct for revenge, changed Valjean's life forever. In the descriptive words of one writer, quote, a naked encounter with forgiveness, especially since he had never repented... Melted the granite defenses of his soul, he dedicated himself from then on to helping others in need. And one such needy person was a poor destitute former prostitute who had been mercilessly beaten and was near death when Valjean took her in and selflessly cared for her. In the movie, as she lies dying on her bed, a remarkable interaction takes place between them. Now, pay close attention as I read you the dialogue. Pay close attention to the words of Valjean to this woman. He says, don't worry. I will bring your daughter to you. Daughter that she had given up so that she could go to work to make enough money to one day get her back. I'll send the money And bring Cosette here. The woman says, She can't live with me. Valjean says, Of course she can, and she will. She'll attend a school, and you won't have any more worries. When you're better, I'll find work for you. The woman says, But you don't understand. I'm a whore, and Cosette has no father. Valjean says, She has the Lord. He is her father, and you are his creation. In his eyes, you have never been anything but an innocent, beautiful woman. Now, Jean Valjean in that powerful scene is an icon of Jesus Christ in this text in Luke, who himself was the very image of God. Did you hear Valjean's words? I'll say them again. You are His creation. In His eyes, you have never been anything but an innocent, beautiful woman. Now, to be sure, no one of us is innocent of sin. But even in the midst of our sin, we are still the object of God's affection, aren't we? Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us, not after we got our act cleaned up, while we were yet sinners. And as I recently heard someone say, when the creator of matter tells you you matter, then you have purpose, then you have self-esteem. Tony Campolo once reiterated that same thought in another way. He said, God carries your picture in his wallet. That's nothing but a street-smart way of saying theologically that people matter to God, that you matter to God. He created us. He desires all people to come home to him, according to 1 Timothy 3, verse 4. He sees them for what they can be, not necessarily for what they are presently, and he reaches out to draw them in. And if my heart is in sync with his heart, I will do the same. I'll say it again, you and I need to be different than the rest of this world, right? Our love cannot grow cold. As his people, we need to be more like Christ's. His ministry is our ministry. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 5 through 7 says, Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people in on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I also will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. There it is yet again. It's all there. That's what God called his people in the Old Testament to be and to do. Jesus in the New Testament calls us to be and to do. It's plain as day that the power for ministry is the Holy Spirit, and the program for ministry is proclaiming and being good news. And the point of all ministry is people, even the most offensive kind of people. And I have to ask you, as I ask myself, who am I? Who are you? Who are we to look down on others? What were we before we answered Jesus' call? His gracious and merciful invitation to come to him. Who were we? I'll tell you who we were. Because Ephesians tells us who we were. Chapter 2, verse 1. Verse 1 through 5. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's enough right there. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We were of that same spirit as those of the unsaved are now. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh and indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then he repeats it again, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Not a result of your works. It's a gift of God. Why does God love people so much? Why does he love you so much? Well, one author says it's for the same reason that the artist loves his paintings or the boat builder loves his vessels because you were his idea. And God has only good ideas. For we are God's masterpiece of workmanship, he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago, says Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Every year, tens of thousands of women, this author says, attend the Women of Faith conferences. One reason they do is to hear words of comfort. Any of you been to one of those conferences? Lots, lots of you have. But after hearing one speaker after another describe God's compassion for each of his children, an attendee sent this email to this pastor. In that email, she writes, In the movie Hook, Peter Pan had grown up, become old and overweight, and looked nothing like the Peter the the lost boys once knew. In the midst of the boys shouting that this was not Peter, one of the smallest boys took him by the hand and pulled him down to his level. And then he placed his hands on Peter's face, right? And he proceeded to move the skin all around, reshaping his face. And then the boy looked right in Peter's eyes and he said, there you are, Peter. This author says, I brought a lot with me to the Women of Faith Conference, this this woman's email. Things that only God could see, but throughout the weekend I could feel God's hands on my face pushing away all of the stuff that I had brought with me. And then I finally could hear him say, there you are, there you are. You see, that's what we need to do with people. These words illustrate what I believe is one of the most important aspects of the present ministry of Christ and therefore our ministry as his church that the principle for ministry is grace. It's grace. Verse 19 in Luke chapter four. Jesus said that he was anointed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's grace. In his book, The Eye of the Storm, Max Lucato, in his unmatched style, relates an appropriate commentary. Quote, God's goodness is spurred by his nature, not by our worthiness. Someone asked an associate of mine, What biblical precedent do we have to help the poor who have no desire to become Christians? And my friend responded with one word God. God is the precedent because he sent Jesus because God does it daily for millions of people. That's why Jesus did ministry the way that he did. He valued people. They mattered to him. Yancey writes, Jesus proved in person that God loves people not as a matter of race or species, but as individuals. We matter to God. The principle for ministry is grace. Grace. Jesus stopped reading Isaiah chapter 61, verse 2, right in the middle of the verse. You've heard me say that before. Why? Because his ministry during his first coming was to offer the world grace, the favorable year of the Lord. If you read Isaiah chapter 62, the second half of verse 2, you find out that the rest of that verse goes, and the day of vengeance of our God. That's what's going to happen when Jesus comes back the second time. But right now, we're in an age of grace. John 3, verse 16 and 17. For this is how much God loved the world. He gave us His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. That God sent His Son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through Him. But when He comes again, His ministry will be to judge, And it will be to execute vengeance until he comes. Now we are in an age which we proclaim grace to people. That judgment is coming. But right now God is offering you grace to come to him, accept his son Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of your sins, and be saved so that when he comes again, you could go to glory and not be judged for your sins. Because God judged your sins on the cross. If you're in him. It is a time right now in which God is pleased to show men extraordinary favor. That's not to say that he doesn't judge sin now. But a lot of people in this world who think they're getting away with whatever they want are simply riding on his patience right now. His undeserved favor. You know what undeserved favor translates as? Grace. God is patient toward us, writes Peter, not desiring that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 23 in the Old Testament says, but do you think, in the words of God, do you think I enjoy seeing an evil person die? asks the sovereign Lord. No, I would rather see him repent and live. And then in chapter 33 of the same book, Ezekiel the prophet, verse 11 says, "Tell them that as surely as I, the sovereign Lord and the living God, I do not enjoy seeing sinners die, I would rather see them stop sinning and live. Israel, stop the evil that you're doing. Why do you want to die?" That's Ezekiel 33:11 in the Good News Bible. Why do you want to die? It's a good question to ask people. It's a really good question, isn't it? Why do you want to die? Jesus came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, a time of unprecedented offers of grace. The phrase reminds us, if you know your Old Testament, of the year of Jubilee. One year Every 50 years, they were to celebrate the year of Jubilee, which is described in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 8 to 17. If you don't know what the year of Jubilee is, you need to go this week and meditate on that text. That was when all debts were forgiven, all slaves were set free in Israel. The trumpet sounded and liberty was proclaimed. Emancipation is what Christ came to announce. Jesus is our jubilee. That's what we're to announce to people. That Jesus, in Jesus, you, your slavery to sin, you can be set free. All your debts forgiven. A little while ago, I mentioned that movie version of Victor Hugo's masterpiece, Les Miserables, and how he offered this astounding grace to an abused and outcast woman. What I did not go into was the backstory of another act of grace and forgiveness that transformed his own life. You see, sentenced to a 19-year term of hard labor for the crime of just stealing bread, Jean Valjean gradually hardened into a tough convict. No one could beat him in a fist fight. No one could break his will. At last, Valjean earned his release. Convicts in those days had to carry an identification card. However, and no innkeeper would let a dangerous felon spend the night at their inn. So for four days, he wandered the village roads, seeking shelter against the weather until finally a kindly bishop had mercy on him. And that night, Jean Valjean lay still in an overcomfortable bed until the bishop and his sister drifted off to sleep and he rose from his bed and he rummaged through the cupboard for the family silver and crept off into the darkness, stealing it. The next morning, three policemen knocked on the bishop's door with Valjean in tow. They had caught the convict in flight with the purloined silver and were ready to put the scoundrel back in chains for life. And the bishop responded in a way that no one, especially Jean Valjean, ever expected. Listen to his words. So here you are. Sound familiar? He cried to Valjean, I'm delighted to see you. Had you forgotten that I gave you the candlesticks as well? They're silver like the rest and worth a good 200 francs. Did you forget to take them? Jean Valjean's eyes had widened and he was now staring the old man with an expression no words can convey. Valjean was no thief, the bishop assured the the police. This silver was my gift to him. And when the police withdrew, the bishop gave the candlesticks to his guest, now speechless and trembling, and he said these words. He said, do not forget. Do not ever forget, said the bishop, that you have promised me to use the money to make yourself an honest man. You see, the power of the bishop's act, defying every human instinct for revenge absolutely changed Jean Valjean's life forever. God's grace, my friends, is beyond all earthly reason. It accepts the unacceptable. It forgives the unforgivable. It loves the unlovable. And it invites the uninvitable. That is good news to those of us who are somewhat less than perfect, isn't it? Grace is the principle by which a ministry should operate. It makes no earthly sense at all, but it sure makes godly saints, doesn't it? You understand why grace is so hard to accept? Very few people would readily do what that bishop did. Very few. But you know, God does it every single day. God does it every single day. One pastor offers this explanation of the inexplainable, inexplicable. As a sinner, I deserve vengeance. As a sinner, I'm afraid of justice. And so as a sinner, my only hope for survival is grace. In its purest form, it makes no earthly sense at all. He takes the guilty, believing sinner who says, I am lost, unworthy, guilty, as charged, and undeserving of forgiveness, and extends the gift of eternal life to them because Christ's death on the cross satisfied his demands against sin, namely death. And God sees the guilty sinner who comes by faith alone as righteous as his own son. In fact, he even invites us to come home with him and he adopts us into his forever family. And instead of treating us with vengeance or executing justice upon us, God extends to us grace. Now, I said it last week and I will repeat it again today. It is only by grace through faith in Jesus that people can obtain true freedom. Freedom from the fear of death. Freedom from compulsive obsessions. Freedom from legalism. Freedom from guilt. Freedom from sin. And a knowledge that they matter to God. That they are significant That is the ministry that Christ was involved in, and He's still involved in it because we are His hands and feet. It's the ministry that He left to us to accomplish while we're here. It's what you and I must be about. So, undertaking the ministry of the church absolutely means understanding the ministry of Christ. What is our power? The Holy Spirit. What is our program? Proclamation, both in life and in word. What is our point? People. That's the point. All people. What is the principle by which we operate? Grace. What is the purpose? Well, as I wrap this up, it's one thing. The purpose for ministry is to glorify God. It's to glorify God. John chapter 17 and verse 4, Jesus' high priestly prayer, Jesus says, I have shown your glory on earth. Father, I have finished the work you gave me to do. Jesus accomplished what he was sent to do. And by doing that, he glorified his Father who was in heaven. Now the big question for us is, will we do it too? Again, the words of John 3.16 remind us quite graphically that grace, costly grace, has been extended to us by the precious sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. As you contemplate the significance of John 3.16's words, listen closely between the lines of what God is saying to you. God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You hear what God is saying in between the words of those, in between those words and those lines. He's putting his hands on your face and he's squishing your face all around and he's looking into your eyes and he's saying, there you are, and you can put your name in there. There you are. So Max Lucado concludes with the rest of his Dr. Seuss style poetry. No more stilts or struts, spills or falls. Let others play the silly games, not us, we found something better, so I'm told. So, have some of the people of Stiltsville found something better? Stiltsvillians still cluster and crowds still clamor, but more stay away. They seem less enamored. Since the carpenter came and refused to be stilted, he chose low over high and he left the system tip tilted. You matter already. He explained to the town, trust me on this one. Keep your feet on the ground. Let's pray. Lord, open my eyes, all of us, our eyes, and help us to recognize our neighbors. Open our hearts so we can feel their suffering and understand their needs. Help us to see that our freedom in you is actually a yoke of service to others that you have placed in our lives. Help us, Lord, to honor you by honoring them. I pray that you seal this assignment in the center of our souls, Lord, so that every day we may love our neighbor more. And in doing so, we may love you more as well. For it's in Jesus' holy and precious name that I pray.